Hi everyone, this is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about law keepers and law breakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspaper men, and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches bustin' country and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. As fans of the Old West, you are, no doubt, familiar with the gunfight at the O.K. Corral and the famous town of Tombstone, Arizona. This story was brought to life brilliantly in the 1993 epic movie Tombstone, starring Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer. Or for you older folks, the 1957 classic Gunfight at the O.K. Corral, starring Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. Well, what we have in store for you today here at 1001 Stories from the Old West is the real story of Tombstone. We will be reading an excerpt from the book When the West Was Young by Frederick Bechtel, copyright 1922, chapters 3 and 4, Tombstone and Tombstone's Wild Oats. I'm going to read to you the acknowledgement that Bechtel opens his book with. The writer is indebted for the material in this book to a goodly number of the old-timers, from whose lips came much of what is written in the following pages, and to numerous printed works which he consulted, sometimes to authenticate data and sometimes to get additional facts. From there, he goes on to name some of those old-timers who helped him put these stories together. In that list, we see sheriffs, judges, Arizona Rangers, pioneers, lawmen from Tombstone itself, characters specifically mentioned in the stories. Not to mention the Tombstone Epitaph, the original Tombstone newspaper, and a better name for a local paper I don't think you'll find. So although those movies, Tombstone and Gunfight at the OK Corral, are great movies and classics in their own right, they aren't the real story. So what I'm going to present to you over these next two episodes, how Tombstone got its name and how Tombstone got its fame, the real story of Tombstone, Arizona. More than 140 years ago, a raw young mining camp down in southeastern Arizona was preparing to assume the functions of a duly organized municipality and its population at that period, nearly everyone in the place was a male of voting age, was considering the important question of a name. The camp stood out against the skyline at the crest of a ridge in the foothills of the Mule Mountains, not far from the Mexican boundary. For the most part, it consisted of tents, but there were a few adobe buildings and some marvelous creations from goods boxes and tin cans. Facing one end of its single brief street, you looked out upon a dump of high-grade silver ore, and if you turned the other way, you surveyed a sprouting little graveyard hard by a large corral. From almost any point, you had a good view of the Dragoon Mountains across a wide stretch of mesquite-covered lowlands, and at almost any hour of the day, you were likely to see the smoke of at least one Apache signal fire rising from those frowning granite ramparts. 
The men in the camp were, nearly all of them, old-timers in the West. Miners from the Comstock load whose boom was then on the wane. Teamsters who had been freighting all over the blazing deserts of the Southwest. Investors and merchants from Tucson. Buffalo hunters from western Kansas, Texas, and Colorado. Gamblers from Dodge City, El Paso, and Santa Fe. Indian fighters, cattle rustlers, professional claim jumpers, and even some gentle-voiced desperados of the real breed, equally willing to slay from behind or to take a long chance in front, according to the way the play came up. Few of these men wore coats. A great many of them carried single-action revolvers and holsters. The old-fashioned cattleman's boot was the predominant footgear. Nicknames were even more common than surnames, and it was bad form, sometimes dangerously so, to ask a man about his antecedents until he had volunteered some information on that point. In such a crowd, it is easy to see that there would be many ideas on any given subject, and the question of the new town's name had evoked a multitude of suggestions. Amusements were still few. The purveyors of hectic pleasure had thus far succeeded in bringing only one piano and only a half a dozen dance hall girls, all decidedly worse for the wear, into the camp. And either faro or whiskey has its limitations as a steady means of relaxation. So it came about that any advocate could usually find an audience to hearken to his arguments for his pet selection. At intervals, when they were not toiling at assessment work in the shafts, which pocked the hillside, or dodging Apaches in the outlying country, the citizens found diversion in discussing the ideas thus submitted. And the merits of these propositions were debated by groups in the brief street by players seated before the tables in the gambling halls, by members of the never-absent lines before the bars, and by dust-mantled travelers within the Concord stages which came tossing over the weary road from Tucson. Gradually, public opinion began to crystallize. One name was spoken more often as the days went by, until it became evident that the great majority favored it, and it was chosen. They called the town Tombstone and placed one more tradition on the western map. The old-timers always showed a very fine sense of the fitness of things when they christened a river, mountain range, or a town. If one were to devote his time to studying the map of our country west of the Mississippi and resuscitating the tales whose titles are printed thereupon, he could produce a large volume of marvelous stories but the entire compilation would contain nothing more characteristic of the days when men carried rifles to protect their lives than the story of that name, Tombstone. The story of Tombstone deals with the period when southeastern Arizona was Apache land. Geronimo, Victorio, and Natchez were constantly leading their naked warriors into the mountain ranges which rise from those mesquite-covered plains to lurk among the rocks, watching the lower country for travelers. And when these came to descend upon them for the sake of loot and the love of murder. 
A few bold cattlemen like John Slaughter and Peter Kitchen had established ranches in the region. These held their homes by constant vigilance and force of arms. Escorts of soldiers frequently guarded the stages on their way to and from Tucson, and there was hardly a month in the year when a driver, guard, and passenger did not make a running fight of it somewhere along this portion of the route. Such were conditions during the summer of 1877 when the tale begins in the dry wash which comes down from the Tombstone Hills into the valley of the San Pedro, near where the hamlet of Fairbanks stands today. Fragments of horn silver lay scattered among the cactus and dagger plants in the bed of the dry wash. There was a point where the stony slope above the bank was strewn with them. A little further up, an outcropping of high-grade ore showed plainly in the hard, white sunshine. The flank of the hill was leaking precious metal, like a rotting treasure chest. It was in this dry wash that an anonymous tragedy unfolded. Two prospectors, whose names are now lost to history, made their way into the valley of the San Pedro, looking for silver. To the Apaches in that region, prospectors were becoming an old story in that summer of 1877. And two of them meant good pickings. Bacon, coffee, sugar, and firearms. And there was the fun of killing with the chance of torture thrown in. Thus, into oblivion rode the two prospectors. After the deed was done, the Apaches stripped the clothing from the dead men and left them to the Arizona sun. They took away with them what loot they found. They never noticed the little heap of specimens from the outcropping. Or if they noticed, they thought it of no importance. A few handfuls of rock fragments meant nothing to them. And so the ore remained near the bodies of the prospectors. The old-timers go on to tell how Jim Shea came riding down that dry wash one day, late in the summer, with his rifle across his saddle horn and a little troop of grim horsemen about him. Somewhere ahead of these dusty, sunburned riders, a band of Apaches were urging their wearied ponies onward under the hot sun. They herded a bunch of stolen horses before them as they fled. The chase had begun with the beginning of the day at Dragoon Pass. What bloodshed had preceded it is not known. But Shay and his companions were following a hot trail, eager for reprisals, cautious against ambush. As they came on down the wash, the leader scanned the stony bed, reading the freshening signs left by the fugitives, while two who rode on either side of him watched every rock, shrub, and gully which might give cover to lurking enemies. Now, as they clattered along the arroyo's bed, Shea suddenly drew rein. Leaning far to one side and low, after the lithe fashion of the cowboy, he swept his hand earthward and picked up a little fragment of dark rock, straightened his body in the saddle once more, and glancing sharply at the bit of ore, dropped it into his pocket. He repeated this movement two or three times in the next hundred yards. In that country, chasing Apaches, or being chased by them, was almost as much a part of life's routine as sleeping without your sheets. 
and no one remembers how this particular affair ended. But Jim Shea kept those bits of silver ore. Later, he showed them to an assayer somewhere up on the Gila and learned their richness. Then, he determined to go back and locate the ledge from which the elements had carried them away. But that project demanded a substantial grub stake. He postponed the expedition until it was too late. In Tucson, they tell of a prospector by the name of Lewis, who wandered into those foothills during that year, found some high-grade float, and traced it to a larger outcropping than the one down by the dry wash. But he had hardly made the marvelous discovery when he caught sight of a dark head above a rocky ridge about 50 yards away. He abandoned his search to seek the nearest cover. By the time he had gained the shelter, a dozen Apaches were firing at him. He made a good fight of it with his rifle, and the luck which had caused him to look up before the Apaches had their sights trained on him had put a wide space of open ground about his natural fort. No Apache ever relished taking chances, and Lewis was able to hold off the band until darkness came. Then he crept forth and wormed his way through the gullies of the San Pedro Valley. Don found him miles from the spot. He came back to Tucson with his specimens. Some local speculators heard his story, saw the ore, and grub-staked him for another trip. But when he reached the foothills of the Mule Mountains, Lewis found that the long afternoon of battle and the ensuing night of flight had left him utterly at sea as to the location of that large ledge. He had to begin his hunt all over again. He used up his grub-stake, got a second from his backers, and subsequently a third. So, while Lewis was combing down the gullies between the broken ridges for the ore body, and while Jim Shea was meditating on an expedition after the riches of which he had got a trace down by the dry wash, a new prospector showed up. Ed Shifflin came to the Brunknow house to embark on the adventure which was to give the town of Tombstone its name. The Bronco House, men call it now, but Brunknow was the name of the man who built it, and the new term is a corruption. Its ruins still stand on the hillside, a few miles from the dry wash, a rifle shot or so from the spot where the two prospectors met their death. In those days, it was a lonely outpost of the white man in the Apache's land. The summer of 1877 was drawing to a close. Its showers were already a distant memory, and all southeastern Arizona was glowing under the white-hot sun rays when Shifflin rode his mule up from the San Pedro to seek the protection of its thick adobe walls. His long beard and his steady patience in his eyes, the patience which comes to the prospector during his solitary wanderings in search of rich ore, gave him the appearance of a man past middle age, although he had not seen his thirtieth year. His curling hair reached his broad shoulders. Wind and sun had tanned his features so deeply that his blue eyes stood out in strange contrast to his dark skin. His garments were sadly torn, and he patched them in many places with buckskin. Shifflin had left his father's house in Oregon ten years before. 
He searched the Coeur d'Alene's for riches, and finding none, struck out from Idaho for Nevada. There he remained through two blazing summers, traveling afoot from the sagebrush hills in the north across the silent deserts east of Death Valley. He wandered on to Colorado, where he toiled in the new mining camps between prospecting trips into the great plateaus along the western slope of the Rockies. From Colorado, he went southward into New Mexico, thence westward to Arizona. He accompanied a troop of cavalry from Prescott down to the foot of the Huachucas, where they established a new post. During the last leg of that journey, he saw these foothills of the Mule Mountains in passing, and in spite of the warnings from the soldiers, he was now returning to prospect the district. He had spent some days at the Herrick Ranch down in the valley, and the men about the place had strongly advised him against traveling into the hills. They cited various gruesome examples of the fate which overtook solitary wanderers in this savage land. They might as well have saved their breath. Shifflin had seen some mineral stains on a rock outcropping when he passed through the country with the cavalry early in the season. So now he came on toward the Brunknow House, where he could make his camp closer to those hills upon whose exploration his mind was set. There were several men lounging about the adobe when he reached it, a lean and seasoned crew, dust-stained from many a wild ride. Burned by the border sun, they welcomed him with a few terse questions as to where he had come from and what the troops were doing over at the new post. Of themselves they said nothing, nor offered any information of their business in this lonely spot. But when Shifflin had made his camp close to the shelter of those thick adobe walls, he learned more of his hosts. There was a mine hard by, at least it went by the name of a mine, and it was a sort of common understanding that the owners were doing assessment work. The fragments on the dump, however, were only country rock. In later years, gorgeous tales of rich ore at the bottom of the shallow shaft resulted in a series of claim jumpings, which in their turn netted no less than 11 murders. But the slayers only wasted their powder, for the ground here never yielded anything more interesting than dead men's bones. And at the time when Shifflin was abiding at the Brunknow house, the inmates were letting their mining tools rust. All the while, they kept their firearms well-oiled. For the mine was nothing more or less than a blind, and the adobe was simply a rendezvous for Mexican smugglers. In that era, when a man practiced pistol shooting from the hip, the written statutes were one thing, and the local conceptions of proper conduct another. Here, where the San Pedro Valley came straight northward across the boundary, affording a good route for pack trains, smuggling American wares into the Southern Republic was nearly a recognized industry. As long as a man could bring his contraband to market past marauding Apaches and the bands of renegade whites who had drifted to the border, he was entitled to the profit he made, and no questions asked. So the men at the Brunknow House accepted Shiflin's presence without any fear of ill consequences. Had their calling been more stealthy, they still would not have worried about him. Prospectors went unquestioned among all sorts of lawbreakers in that period, owning something of the same immunity 
which simple-minded persons always got from the Indians. He came in at evening and rolled up in his blankets after cooking his supper, and in the morning he went forth again into the hills. No one minded him. To him, the Brunknow house meant shelter from the Apaches. That was all. He could roll up his blankets here at night, knowing that when he would waken in the morning without any likelihood of looking up into the grinning faces of Apaches who had tracked him to his camp. We're going to take a brief pause to hear from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West, How Tombstone Got Its Name. Now, let's get back to the story. He minded his own business. As a matter of fact, his own business was the only thing he deemed worth minding. It was the one affair of importance in the whole world. The more he saw of those hills, the more sure he became that they contained minerals. Somewhere among them, he fervently believed, an ore body of great richness lay hidden from the world, and he had been devoting the years of his manhood to seeking just such a secret. In those long years of constant search, a longing mightier than the lust for riches had grown in him. Explorers know that longing, and some great scientists. Once it owns a man, he becomes oblivious to all else. Every day, Shifflin set forth on his mule from the adobe house. He rode out into the hills. All day, he hunted through the winding gullies for some bits of float which would betray the presence of an outcropping on the higher levels. Once, he cut the fresh trail of a band of Apaches, and once he caught sight of two mounted and riding along a slope a mile away. Several times, he picked up specimens of rock which bore traces of silver, but he found no ore worth assaying. The men at the Brunknow house saw him departing every morning and shook their heads. They had seen other men ride out alone into the hills, and they had afterward found some of those travelers, what the Apaches had left of them. It was no affair of theirs, but they fell into the habit of watching the tawny slopes every afternoon when the shadows began to lengthen and speculating among themselves whether the bearded rider was going to return this time. One of their number, he had lost two or three small bets by Shifflin's appearing safe and sound on various evenings, 
took it upon himself to give the visitor a bit of advice. What fur, he asked, do y'all go taking them passers that way? Shifflin smiled good-naturedly at the questioner. Just looking for stones, he said. Well, the other told him, all I got to say is this. Y'all keep on and y'all sure find your tombstone out there someday. He never dreamed that he had named a town. Nor did Shifflin think much of it at the moment. He had received other warnings just as strong before, but none of them had been put as neatly as this. So the words abode in his memory, although they did not affect his comings and goings in the least. Only a few days later, he left the Brunknow house for a longer trip than usual. He rode his mule down the San Pedro toward the mouth of the dry wash in which the two prospectors had found the silver ore the day before they died. And the luck that guides a man's steps towards good or ill, as the whim seizes it, saw to it that he came into the old camp where the Apaches had enjoyed their morning murder months before. Someone had buried both bodies, but whoever had done this had not enough interest in minerals to disturb the little heap of specimens. It lay near the graves, just as the Apaches had left it, just as the original owners had piled it up before they sought their blankets, to dream perhaps of their big strike, while death waited for the coming of the dawn to cheat them out of their discovery. The story was as plain as printed words on a page. The nameless graves among the tall clumps of bear grass proclaimed the penalty for venturing into this neighborhood. The little handful of dark-colored stones betrayed the secret of the riches in the hills. The dry wash came down between the ridges half a mile ahead to show the way to other float like this. It was as though, after the years of long and constant search, he found himself faced by a grim challenge to attain the consummation of his hopes on the pain of death. When he had examined the bits of rock, he mounted his mule and struck out for the mouth of the dry wash. After he had ridden for some distance up the stony bed of the arroyo, he dismounted and came on slowly leading the patient animal. He searched the rocks for fragments of float. At times, he left the mule and crept to the summit of a nearby ridge where he remained for some minutes looking out over the country for some sign of Indians. The day wore on, and as he went farther, the hills to the south became loftier. The banks drew closer in on both sides of him. The boulders in the arid bed were larger. Cactus and Spanish bayonet harassed him like malignant creatures. Skeleton ocotillos and bristling yuccas imposed their thorny barriers before him. The sun poured its full flood of white-hot rays upon him. He wound his way in and out among the obstacles, keeping his intent eyes upon the glaring rocks, save only when he lifted them to look for lurking Apaches. The shadows of noonday lengthened into the shadows of afternoon. They crept up the hillside until only the higher peaks remained to shine. Evening came. Shiplin picked up a sharp fragment of blackish rock. Horn silver. In those days when the great Comstock load was lessening its yield and the metal was at a premium, 
Such ore as this which he held meant millions. If one could only find the main ledge. He scanned the specimen closely, looked round for others, and then, as his eyes roved up the hillside, the exultation born of that discovery passed from him. Dusk was creeping up from the valley. The time had passed when he could return by daylight to the Brunknow house. He must make the most of the scant interval which remained before darkness if he could find a hiding place where he could camp. He glanced about him to fix the landmarks in his memory that he might return to this spot in the morning. Then he led the mule away into the hills and picketed it behind a ridge where it would be out of sight from a passing Apaches. He found his own hiding place a mile away from where he tethered the animal. Here, three huge bare knolls of granite boulders rose beside the wash. From the summit of any one of these, a man could survey the whole country. Between its ragged rocks, he would be invisible to anyone below. He chose the highest one and crept to its crest. The gray twilight was spreading over the land when he raised his head above one of the boulders. In that instant, he dropped to earth as if he had been shot. An Indian was riding up to the bottom of the knoll. The Apache's rifle lay across his lean bare thighs. His gaunt body bent forward as he scanned the rocks above him. He had been heading for the hill from this side while Shiflin was climbing up the opposite slope. Evidently, he was coming to the summit to look over the country for enemies. There must be others of the band close by. Shiflin found a narrow crack between two boulders and peeped out. Another Apache appeared at that moment on the summit of the next knoll. He was afoot, and now he stood there motionless, searching the wide landscape for any moving form. He was so near that in the waning light the smear of war paint across his face was visible. Shiflin crooked his thumb over the hammer of his rifle and raised it slowly to full cock, pressing the trigger with his finger to prevent the click. The first Apache had dismounted and was climbing the hill. As he drew closer, the clink of ponies' hooves sounded down in the dry wash. A number of Apaches came into sight above the bank. More followed, and still more, until thirty-odd were bobbing up and down to the movement of the horses. A moment passed, one of those mighty moments when a man's life appears before him as a period which he has finished, and Shiflin's mind went to that talk with the man at the Brunknow house. Y'all keep on and you'll sure find your tombstone out there someday. He could hear the old-timer saying the words now, and as he listened to the grim warning again, he felt, as perhaps those two prospectors felt, in the moment of their awakening down by the river, that fate had sadly swindled him. He was stiffening his trigger finger for the pull, peering across the sights at the Indian who had climbed to within a few yards of the weapon's muzzle, when the warrior on the summit of the next knoll waved his hand. The Apache halted at the gesture, and Shiflin followed his gaze in time to see the lean brown arm of the sentinel sweep forward. Both of the Apaches turned 
and descended the knolls. They caught up their ponies and rode on, following the course of the wash below them. The band down in the arroyo's bed were receding. The rattle of hooves grew fainter. Shiflin lowered the hammer of his rifle and took his first full breath. A low outcry down in the wash stopped his breathing again. The band had stopped their ponies. Some of them were dismounting. He could see these gathering about the place where he had led his mule up the bank. Two of them were pointing along the course he had taken with the animal. Several others were creeping up the slope on their bellies following the fresh trail. The murmur of their voices reached the white man where he lay watching them. Then, as he was giving up hope for the second time, a mounted warrior, evidently their chief, called to the trackers. They rose, looked about, and scurried back to their ponies like frightened quail. The whole band were hammering their heels against the flanks of their little mounts. The coming of night had frightened them away. The shadows deepened. Stillness returned upon the land. The stars grew larger in the velvet sky. Shiflin crouched among the boulders at the summit of the knoll and fought off sleep while the great constellations wheeled in their long courses. The dawn would come in its proper time, and it seemed as certain as that fact that they would return with it to hunt him out. He dared not leave the place, for he might stray into some locality where they would find him without shelter when the day revealed his trail. So he waited for the sunrise and the beginning of the attack. At last, the color deepened in the east. The rocks below his hiding place stood out more clearly. He could see no sign among them of creeping Apaches. The sun rose and still nothing moved. He came forth finally in the full blaze of the hot morning and found the mule where he had picketed him behind the ridge. When he returned to the dry wash, he saw the tracks where the band had passed the evening before. For some reason of their own, they had found it best to keep on that course instead of coming back to murder him. He resumed his search for float where he had left it off. It showed more frequently as he went on. He followed the bits of ore to a narrow stringer of blackish rock. He dug into it with his prospector's pick, chipped off specimens, and carefully covered up the hole. The danger of Apaches had passed, but a new fear had come to him, the dread that some rival prospector might happen upon his discovery before he could establish possession. For his provisions were running low. He had no money. He needed a good grub stake and companions to help him hold down the claim against jumpers before he could begin development work. He hurried back to the Brunkmail house. An attack of chills and fever brought on by his night among the rocks gave him a good excuse to leave the place. The climate, he said, did not agree with him. While he was trying to think of one with whom to share his secret, one whom he could trust to take his full portion of the dangers which would attend the claim's development, he remembered his brother Al, who was working at the signal mine way over in Mojave County. There was the man. So he made his way across the state of Arizona. He stopped at times to earn money for food to carry him through, and it was December before he reached his destination. Al Shiflin had a friend, Dick Gerd, 
who was an assayer. Gerd saw the specimens, tested them, and was on fire at once. He joined forces with the brothers, helped them to procure a grub stake, and in January 1878, the three men set forth from Williams Fork on the Colorado River in a light wagon drawn by two mules. Spring was well on its way when they reached Tucson and made their camp in Bob Leatherwood's corral. The Apaches were raiding throughout the southeastern part of the territory, and the little town of Adobes was getting new reports of murders from that section every day. They drove their mules on eastward up the long mesas leading to the San Pedro Divide. At the Pantano Station, they saw the fresh scars of Apache bullets on the adobe walls. The men had held the place against a large band of Geronimo's warriors only a few days before. Now, as they drove on, they kept constant lookout and their rifles were nearly always in their hands. Every morning they rose long before the dawn and the two of them would climb the ridges near the camp to watch the country as the light came over it while the third caught up the mules and harnessed them. They turned southward up the San Pedro, avoiding the stage station at the crossing of the river, lest some other party of prospectors might follow them. They came on to the Brunknow house to find two more fresh graves of Apache victims under the adobe walls. They made their permanent camp here, and Shifflin took his two companions up to the dry wash. They found the outcropping undisturbed. Gerd and Al Shifflin dug away at the dark rock with their prospector's picks. Less than three feet below the surface, the stringer pinched out. The claim was not worth staking. Beside the little strip of ore, whose false promises of riches had lured them into this land of death, they held a conference. The hills opened to a low swale, which led up toward the loftier summits in the south. They decided to follow that depression in search of another ledge. They made their daily journeys along its course, returning with evening to the Brunknow House, whose inmates were away at that time on some expedition of their own. Sometimes they saw the smoke signal fires over in the dragoons. Sometimes the slender columns rose from the summit of the whetstone mountains in the north. One morning, they had spent the previous night out here in the hills. They awoke to find a fresh trail in the bear grass within a hundred yards of where they had been sleeping. And in the middle of the track, Dick Gerd picked up one of the rawhide wristlets which the Apaches wore to protect their arms from the bowstring. That day, Ed Shifflin discovered a new outcropping. Gerd assayed the specimens in a rude furnace which he had fashioned from the fireplace at the Brunknow house. Some of them yielded as high as $2,200 to the ton. That's $62,000 in today's money. Exploration work showed every evidence of a great ore body. Two or three of the fragments which they had chipped from it below the surface assayed $9,000 a ton. $255,000 in today's money. They had made their big strike. They staked the claim, and when they came to fixin' on a name, Ed Shifflin remembered once more those words of the old-timer at the Brunknow house. 
We'll call it Tombstone, he said and told the story. It was recorded in Tucson as The Tombstone. And when the big rush came, Ed Shifflin, then a figure of importance in the new camp, recited the tale to some of the men who had risked their lives in traveling to these hills. And so they, in turn, retold the tale. That is the way the town got its name. In after years, when men had learned the fullness of that secret which the Apaches had guarded so well from the world, when the mines of Bisbee were yielding their enormous stores of metal, and Tombstone's mines had given forth many millions of dollars in silver, Ed Shifflin remained a wealthy man. But the habit of prospecting abided with him, and he used to spend long months alone in the wilderness, searching for the pure love of the search. Just before one of these expeditions, he was driving out of Tombstone with Gus Barron, another old-timer and a close friend. And as they went down the Fairbank Road, they reached the spot where the three great boulder knolls rise beside the dry wash. Shifflin drew rein. This, he said to Barron, is the place where I camped that night when the Apaches almost got me the night before I found the stringer on the hill. And when I die, I want to be buried here with my canteen and my prospector's pick beside me. So when he died up in Canyon City, Oregon, just about 20 years after he had made that discovery, they brought his body back and buried it on the summit of the knoll, and they erected a great pyramid of granite boulders on the spot for his monument. And with inside of that lonely tomb, The town stands out on the skyline, commemorating by its name the steadfastness of Ed Shifflin, Prospector. I'm telling you, those are some tough dudes. Well, now that we know how the town of Tombstone got its name, tune in next week and you'll hear the true story of how Tombstone got its fame. If you think these prospectors are tough, Just wait until you hear about the gunfighters. Next week, we'll be introduced to classic characters of the Old West. Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, Johnny Ringo, John Slaughter. When the Earp clan faces off with the Clantons in the mud and the grime of the OK Corral. The ultimate showdown between the good guys and the bad guys when everybody wears gray. The real gunfight at the OK Corral. So be sure to tune in next week and don't forget to leave us a review and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and you can become a patron on Patreon. And speaking of reviews, here's a review from Quo Mofo. Great storytelling. Good stories and easy to listen to. Rangering is a good one. Kevin Sykes does a great job of narrating has a good cadence, and it makes the listener feel as if they're in the Old West. Keep up the good work. Now, I may have read that one before, but I don't mind reading it again. Well, we'll see you next week. Looking forward to it.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.